First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. All jokes aside, if I ever hear a child of mine say Chris Brown better than Michael Jackson, that might be the day. (laughs) That they wind up on the on the street. Speaking of music, the Grammys are this weekend, and while there are a number of artists who have made some incredible music over the past year, like Kendrick Lamar, like Harry Styles, we all know most eyes will be on Beyonce, Queen B herself. Now I don't know what your favorite Renaissance track is, but I know what mine is. It's cozy. The iconic Honey Dijon is co-producing it. Peter Rahafa is sampled. But really, it's all about the lyrics for me. They're so empowering. It's like the perfect bop for Black History Month. She's a god. She's a hero. She survived. Oh, she been through. Damn, she lived Might I suggest you don't mess with my sis? Sometimes I think about my life and how God has kept me, even when I didn't feel like keeping myself. Sometimes I think about my trans sisters like T.S. Madison and Honey Dijon. Sometimes I think about the civil rights leaders. I think about the Obamas. I think about Ellen and Rosie. And I think about the voice you heard at the top of the show, Jamel Hill, who was targeted by the Trump administration after calling out the former president for his racist rhetoric. Jamel and I are both from Detroit. Like, Detroit, Detroit. We even went to the same middle school, though I graduated a couple of months before she got there. We actually didn't meet until after we started our careers in journalism, but before either of us had made it to ESPN. Because we came from similar hoods, we had this unspoken understanding of each other. We know what it took for us to carve out these careers and have what we have. I guess real recognizes real. But despite that mutual understanding, there are still experiences that she shares in her memoir, Uphill, that are absolutely shocking to me such as the number of times she almost died, or the time she actually did die before doctors were able to revive her. It's an incredible journey, one that includes being raised by her stepfather James, who she learned later in life was closeted. When you read about her life, you understand why I am reminded of Beyonce's cozy. But she didn't just survive all that she's been through. She's thriving, and today, she's using her platform to help others thrive as well such as her work through The Atlantic and TV appearances, The Unbothered Network. My girl Jamel is a beast, y'all. And I am so happy that she joined us to talk about a relationship that opened her eyes. So Jamel, the thing that's so crazy to me about this conversation we're about to have is that you and I literally met dealing with an LGBTQ plus issue. 
Kind of, sort of. <laughs> kind of, sort of. Almost. <laughs> kind of, sort of, almost. Uh, just for background for everyone, so one of Jamel's closest friends in the world, Kelly Carter, happens to be a friend of mine as well. I met her actually before I met Jamel, and we were both living in Michigan. Were you living in Michigan at the time, too? Um, I was living in Michigan, yes. And I get this call from Kelly, who I'd met at a journalism conference, and she had like an emergency. She had a friend that she wanted me to meet. And this friend was dating someone, but she couldn't quite figure out whether or not her, that guy was gay. And so Kelly had the bright idea of asking me to drive over to the other side of the state for the sole purpose of checking to see whether or not this guy was gay. Now, see, I, I did play the iffy game called Ask a Gay Man. <laughs> <All right? laughs> I did because there was, I don't even remember what touched off the concerns that you know, I had, but Kelly was just like, listen, we got to ask my boy LZ because he'll keep it real and this and that. And I was like, okay, all right, I'm in, you know? And so literally she summoned you just so we could run by you some of my concerns, <laughs> get your opinion since a, a, you sort of loosely socially knew this person to find out right. like, had you noticed or did you know of any team that he may have? <laughs> And so, so it was. Um, so you wanted yeah. to borrow my gaydar. I did. I was like, mine might be bad. I did. I did. I used it for your gaydar. <laughs> and um, yeah, I feel like it was another conversation we had later on, not about something around dating, where I think I, I, I did another ask a gay man with you. But I don't remember what that conversation was. But I know I did. <laughs> I, I've come to you once or twice asking like, OK, let me let me borrow your gayness for a second so I can. Yes. So I could know if I, I think it was, that was more about an issue. I wanted to make sure that I was sensitively and approaching something in the manner in which um, I needed to. And, and just for clarification, I did not out anyone. No. You know. That person <laughs> was not gay. That's, yes. That person was not gay. It was not gay. Uh, no. LZ did, Had other did, issues, did but him. was not gay. Had other issues. <laughs> You know what? <laughs> his sexuality was, <laughs> considering everything else that happened in our interaction, his sexuality was was probably the least of my concerns. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason why I brought that up, and it's important to this conversation that we're about to have today on family, is because I got to page 23 of your incredible memoir, Uphill. And if you hadn't purchased it yet nor had a chance to read it yet, I highly encourage you to do so. It's a remarkable read. I killed this book in a day and a half. I could not put it down. I neglected my duties. I neglected my husband. It was just that powerful and that remarkable. So congratulations to you and thank you for sharing so much of your story with all of us. It's really um, eye-opening and had a lot of things for me to think about. But on page 23, I would like to read this passage to you. Quote, but a new home couldn't minimize the problems that were escalating between James and my mother. James had been spending a lot of nights away from home, which led my mother to believe that he was sleeping around with other women. When my mother finally confronted him with a suspicious behavior, he confessed he was bisexual and he had been suppressing the attraction he felt towards other men for years. My mother was devastated because she truly loved James. This was the mid-1980s and homophobia was rampant. There was a lot of ignorance, stereotype, and hysteria about gays and lesbians that became even more pronounced because of the HIV-AIDS crisis. If you look back at many of the movies, television shows, and music and comedy specials made during that time, the F word was used regularly in pop culture. One of the things that never occurred to me, and I love telling the story of how we met because, you know, it, 
it, it was ghetto, it was real, it was all those things. But it never occurred to me that you may be wondering about the person you were seeing sexual orientation because you had had an intimate moment in which you dealt someone who was in the closet and in your life and in a key part of your family. This was your stepfather. Yeah. And, and you know what? Until you just made that connection, I hadn't really thought about that either. But that was part of the reason. And ironically enough, um, I did later find out this person I was dating was, in fact, cheating on me uh, with another woman. So it was <laughs> so some of the suspicions <laughs> that I had were like, oh, <laughs> He was cheating on me. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, that's what it was. That's what it was. Okay. Got it. But no, um, yeah, I mean, that was a very uh, painful time, obviously, for my mother to have to go through that. And as I, you know, as you know from reading the memoir, as the story concludes, James, who was my first stepfather, because my mother, she never married my bi- biological father, and, and she's now on her second marriage. And so uh, my first stepfather, James, who I was very, very close to, uh, he wound up contracting. Uh, HIV later it became full-blown AIDS so for 10 years my mother had to get an HIV test and you know there's the trauma of losing a marriage losing a husband finding out this very you know this extraordinarily life-changing detail about their lives you know all the feelings of feeling like she should have known and all these other things all that stuff that would you would think that would come with it but obviously through lived experience through times changing I look back on it now where I feel so much sadness and empathy for him now that I was unable to feel from him um, at the time because I did not know why their marriage ended until I was an adult or close, very close to adulthood because my mother knew how I felt about him and knew my emotional connection. And she didn't want anything to really interfere with those feelings or you know and I don't know if she was necessarily trying to out him either you know other than I guess with you know her close close friends and in terms of people who knew what happened so now looking back on it you know there's a again a sadness and an empathy there for me because as he came to he later lived like a more of an openly gay lifestyle to a degree I do believe that his affection for my mother was genuine his affection for me was very genuine I mean I, I didn't know as I wrote about in the book for a long time he was not my biological father because we were that close and he was you know kind of those early memories of my of a father were of him and not my actual biological father so you know, all those things kind of wrapped up in it. It was sad because I do believe that he self-medicated a lot because he couldn't live the life that he really wanted, um, you know, live it in an unapologetic, uncompromising way because that was simply not done then. And then, you know, that there are additional pressures when you come from a black family. That was just, at the time, it was just something that was not it was just not accepted. And so there's a certain kind of emotional prison, I believe, that he was living in. And that probably had a lot to do with why, you know, he later became addicted to drugs. How old were you when your mother started dating him? I was uh, three or four years old um, when she started dating him. Uh, I believe the the story was that his his brother lived in the same neighborhood as uh, my great aunt Jean. And so my mother would see my uh, stepfather around the neighborhood and they started to strike up a friendship. 
and you know friendship led to dating and one of the major things that made her fall in love with him was his connection to me you know he was the man who introduced me to reading you know like and reading which obviously led to me having a writing career because he read to me every night um and was he himself was a voracious reader and and that's kind of what I adopted that from him and he also taught me a lot about sports you know as well like uh I started playing you know baseball pretty young and you know he taught me how to hit in the throw and all those kind of things and you know that was sort of our our thing in our bonding time so yeah you know because she started dating him so early you know that's why those childhood impressions for me are so strong and remain so strong because during that sort of time of where you're first really forming memories he was the one I formed them of and how old were you when your parents divorced? Oh, okay. Let's see. How old was I? Because um, we briefly I, I, I'm moved. trying to get a sense of just how long he was in your life. Right. And so that people can kind of get a sense of what it meant to you emotionally when he was suddenly gone. Right. Uh, he and my mother married when I was five. They were probably divorced by the time I was 10 or 11 years old. I think the divorce probably would have been final when I was about uh, 11 years old. So like a strong five, six years. And even after they got divorced, obviously, we were still in each other's lives for a short period of time. And then he moved back to Indianapolis and he was gone. And uh, I was really hurt by that. Um, I didn't really understand it. And it just left me with a deep sense of like abandonment and um, you know, all those other natural human uh, uh, emotions because um, it made me question the genuineness of our bond for him to leave and seemingly not feel too interested in maintaining the relationship. But that would have coincided with a time where he was getting deeper and deeper into drugs. So then it all started to make sense once I was an adult where I could put together the timeline and say, oh, okay, this is why that separation probably happened. Because as I write about in the book, the next time I saw him, you know, I was either in middle school or high school, like somewhere like uh, I think like ninth or 10th grade somewhere in there was the next time that I I saw him after he left the state when I was a preteen. And to see him in the condition that he was in was just startling to me. And it was clear that the vestiges of our close relationship were gone. Do you believe that your views on the LGBTQ community was shaped from that experience solely? Or do you think that you also were shaped by the larger cultural society that you kind of write about in your book? I mean, in the early days of hip hop, well, most of the days of hip hop, if we're being honest, there's a lot of misogyny <laughs> and homophobia. Right. <laughs> you know, you have to wade through. Obviously, the, the black church is significant uh, in our community, and that influence in terms of what they teach about the LGBTQ plus community influences. I'm just trying to figure out what do you believe was the dominant factor in terms of shaping your perspective growing up on the queer community? Well, I think it was two of those three things that you already mentioned. And, you know, I don't think I fully saw my stepfather at the time growing up as a queer person. One, because I didn't know, <laughs> you know, I didn't know for a while. Right. Um, but it, and even once I found out what was the case, given what were those societal factors, the fact that I grew up in a Baptist church, you know, I got saved when I was like 11 years old. That was such a dominant influence in my family and obviously in our community overall. Then it was the other societal factors you mentioned, the, the music, the movies, the culture, all of that, where, you know, we didn't 
um, at the time, see people in that community as people. The, the lack of dignity that we showed people in the LGBTQ community was was pretty rampant. You know, frankly, like I remember in high school, there was a guy who was in, in my class uh, who it was very obvious that he was gay. But he was trying to present differently because that's what you did. Because, you know, Lord knows high school kids, Mumford, like the level of ridicule that you probably would have faced and bullying would have probably been pretty intolerable. And even though people used to make gay jokes about him um, that would, you know, upset him or, or whatever, you know, he still felt this pressure to present a, a certain way. Um, because that was the time that we lived in. My views didn't start to move away from that until I got to college. And then they later moved when, as I wrote about in the book, I had two back-to-back very close friends of mine come out. And seeing their experience, like living through that with them, is what completely changed my entire perception of how I used to see that community. You know, seeing, you know, the struggle to be seen, to be loved. You know, my other friend who came out to me, you know, I made some offhand comments to him about the sinfulness of, of, you know, being homosexual. You know, all the stuff that you hear drilled into your head 7,000 times when you are growing up uh, in church. And we had that conversation. You know, I said the usual, you know, BS and... Years later, only to find out he, um, you know, he was also struggling with coming out. And I felt awful because, you know, it's in those moments that, you know, like what I could have said could have, A, made him keep this a secret from me forever, just based off our conversation, or B, especially him struggling, you know, with, with the mental health aspect of it. What if that's the conversation that pushes him to do something to himself? you know, based off what I said. And I mean, that's not to suggest he was in like an erratic state of mind, but we know what the depression rates are and the suicide rates are in that community. And they're higher than what it is for uh, everyone else for a reason. And so if I just thought about if I in any way had contributed to that, I could have never forgiven myself. And so once that happened, I was like, I'm officially off that you going to hell bandwagon, never again. And it is true. And it's unfortunate. But a lot of times, you don't change how you feel about something or beliefs that you think are set in stone until you have to live a different experience until it hits a little closer to home. And so yeah, it was just it was life changing for me, very, very life changing. And so now, when you know people see me sort of ride so hard in that allyship, I, I'm like, I don't want to be an ally. I want to be an accomplice because there's a difference. I'm going to help you bury the body and I'm going to give you the alibi when they come looking. <laughs> that is what I want to be uh, for any other community, marginalized community that is not my own. You spend a lot of time in your memoir talking about the pain and the difficulties, particularly between you and your mother and how you work towards healing. Do you think she forgave James? That's a great question. I don't know. I mean, that's the best answer that I have because I would honestly say that like the way she loved him was very different than I saw her uh, exhibit love in other relationships. He seemed like the first man that really got her to drop her guard. And it seemed like the first one that kind of created a net of safety for her that she had not felt in a relationship. So there was a different level of trust I saw there than I saw with other relationships that she had. And I think because of that, the hurt was so deep for her that I don't know 
if that is something she'll ever fully get over. I think a a layer of forgiveness has been given. You know, when I think about your circle of friends and you have some incredible people in your life that you consider family, I, I'm just curious, a present company excluded, of course, uh, do you have anyone? <laughs> well, I would say who's, that. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, do you have anyone in your life now, in your circle, in your family, if you will, both chosen family as well as, you know, biological, who's openly queer that, you know, that you find yourself gravitating towards or that you hold on to as if you were blood? Sure do. I sure do. Um, you know, and that's one thing I'm really proud of is that um, I do have openly queer friends and they're not like surface level friends. I'm not up here counting them like, well, I got one queer friend. <laughs> like, it's not like that. You start, count, you start in counting In case you get them, in trouble. And then you, I will not be that person on TV or whatever medium top of awesome. Well, my one queer friend, well, LZ told me, right? It's like, it's not going to be like that. You know, what I love is just seeing, I love the fact that I've been able to see them, you know, have children and get married and just all these other experiences that I think about like, wow, I remember when none of this was possible for them. And now to see where it's gone, it's just, uh, it really gives me so much joy to be able to see them live their lives in complete and full and total joy. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. The other part of your book that really raised an eyebrow, and for some reason it never dawned on me, even though it was obvious, you don't want to have children. That is true. <laughs> and, it's, and it seemed as if that was a decision 
that was made very, very early in, in your life. And I'm just curious as to what were the factors in terms of, you know, you making that decision for yourself and were those factors at all influenced by your mother's relationship and marriage with James? It was definitely influenced by my mother. And it wasn't just with James. I mean, my mother had some very destructive relationships that I unfortunately had to witness. And it made me very leery about getting into relationships. And it is why, why I think for a long time I operated from the space of not really fully giving myself in relationships. And though, you know, I would say that not everybody deserves that, but I wouldn't even want to try. So I'm just giving people that I'm in intimate relationships with versions of myself as opposed to the full, fully who I am, because I just the vulnerability part was such a struggle for me, which I, of course, discussed, you know, in the in the memoir. I think I very much had the mindset that having children limits your choices. I didn't see the value of what children could bring to my life, to be perfectly honest. So when um, I discovered I was pregnant, I was really uh, devastated by that because I'm like, this is going to destroy my life. And I realized that is not how everybody feels. And I don't have that same attitude now. I just want people to know that. <laughs> but then when I'm in my, you know, uh, late 20s, yes, I was like, I am not about to derail my entire life to have a baby when that has never been my plan. Because uh, I was not one of those women who grew up with like an intense maternal, you know, instinct or, you know, m my ovaries were not dancing every time I saw a baby at the airport. That was not happening. I was not <laughs> one of those. So, yeah, so I, I didn't think, you know, that children were for me. And, and matter of fact, at one point, you know, I was definitely considering getting my getting my tubes tied because I was just like, I know I don't want any kids. So I, let me just go ahead and do this. And I several of my friends had to talk me out of it <laughs> or whatever. They were like, girl, it might change. Now, fast forward to today, LZ, and that I guess like anything, uh, you know, if you're in the right relationship, you know, or in my case, in the right marriage, you start to see things a little bit differently. And maybe a lot of those fears that I had, some of which had to do with the people that I was with. And I'm, I was like, I ain't procreating with that one. <laughs> that's what, that's what <laughs> Right? Like, mm -mm, that is not on the table. <laughs> or, you know, just um, I think this feeling like children were a limitation and not seeing the beauty that children can bring to your life, right? So I think I just looked at it very one-sided. Now, um, you know, I'm, I'm in year four of marriage. Um, the biggest wow. preventer of that is age. But the idea of having children is one that is now an open question. And wow. it's never been an open question in any relationship I've been in. You know, it's something that we've... We've, we've definitely thought about, had conversations about, but we realize because, again, age, that it's something we really need to make a definitive decision about soon. You know, it's so interesting. There are so many parallels between what you're speaking about with your own lived experience and sort of like a lot of the things that the LGBTQ plus community is kind of navigating right now. Because now that we have marriage equality and, and same-sex couples are able to get married, now the conversation of kids is quickly coming right on his heels. In fact, I wonder if my uh, producer Trevor is still listening attentively because I believe he's one of those people who is feeling now this pressure to have kids because, hey, you can get married. Now you can grow your family and have kids. Mm -hmm. And here you See, are now saying. now y'all realize y'all didn't really want them problems. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> 
See, now now you subjected to the whole like where where's this going conversation and like all that <laughs> other stuff. It, but Before. you know what though? It, it it things have changed. Yeah. And I've spoken to, you know, a number of friends who are married who are in like their mid thirties. And I catch myself. I catch myself going, Hey, y'all gonna have some kids? <laughs> like it's such a natural sort of yeah. you know, question to ask a an established couple, regardless of gender or sexual orientation. And yet it, it's is heaped on this whole like antiquated notion that the only reason why two people were to get together would be to have kids or would be to grow their families. Do you think that the pressure that now, you know, queer couples face when it comes to marriage and or you know having children or both um once they're partnered up do you think it's it it is similar to the same pressure because the only reason why i asked that is like it would seem to me because it was not an option for so long that maybe the pressure isn't quite as acute but it also could be worse because it wasn't an an option for so long so now you know when everybody's getting together they're like we're going to have some kids right you know what i'm saying <laughs> <laughs> You know, I was able to avoid uh, those questions because I came out already with a kid. Yep. <laughs> already was a father, and I consider it the most important role I've ever had in my life and couldn't imagine my life not being a father. But I do wonder at times how much of my parenting was based upon what I thought I was supposed to do through cultural norms and conditioning versus what I really wanted to do. Have you ever thought about having more kids? I actually have, Jay. I actually did at one point. When I lived back in Michigan, this was at a point in which the state still not allow uh, same-sex couples or individuals, at that matter, to adopt if you were openly queer. And so I did mm. inquire, and I did look mm. into it, and I was legally not able to adopt. And, you know, in a lot of ways, that still bothers me because... One, I think I'm a pretty good parent. You know, my son's responsible, he's respectable, he's, you know, says yes and please and opens the door, like the whole nine. And like the idea that I would not be qualified because of my sexual orientation, when I've already proven that I'm a good parent as a gay man, just was really, really frustrating. And it kind of limited what I wanted from a family or family perspective, because then I was forced to either move to like a coastal state to have kids, or accept what I have now, which is love as much as I can on the one that I have, knowing that I may not be able to have any more going forward. Um, so mm. yeah, yeah, I, I did uh, wanted to, to have more kids. You know, the law said no, and then Father Time said no, and now my husband right. Steve says no. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. well, you know, that's that can be the, the, such the hard part about that decision is that. And especially, um, I don't know what the age difference is between you and Steve. Are, are you older? Uh, it's about two years. It's about two years. It's about two You're years. You're older or younger? Uh, younger. Younger. But you know, black don't crack, so <laughs> folks usually think he robbed the cradle. <laughs> Just a compliment to him, definitely. Um, so I'm in the situation where I am five years older than my husband, right? And so okay. because of that, it's like our clocks have to be on different schedule. Now, he knew coming into it. Because uh, one of our earliest conversations when we were just getting to know each other, I told him then, like, hey, if you are looking at me like she could be my baby mama or whatever, I'm that the answer is no. Like, I'm I don't want any children. So I told him very early on. So I, because I level set, 
it never has been an issue or a thorn in our relationship. Oddly enough, the thing that kind of happened, and I'm not saying this this is the only factor in us considering that maybe we do, um, you know, want a child, is that, you know, as I got to know him, as I obviously fell in love with him, and seeing how so many of his close friends had kids, it made me want him to experience that. Like, it made me want to give that to him. And, you know, that wouldn't be the predominant reason because I don't think you should have kids for somebody else. You know, you have to be just as invested in doing it. But oddly enough, like, I was the one, like, he was good and fine with, you know, the whole never having kids thing. I'm the one that kind of changed my mind a little bit or came, you know, Mm -hmm. further away from what I originally said. And that was something I did not have on the bingo card of our relationship. (laughs) How do you think you would manage or handle having a kid if that kid was trans or gay? I think I I would be completely fine. And, you know, this is um, also something that has been very helpful in terms of having a, a community that is bigger than just you know, being around the same people and that obviously, as you, you may know this, I'm friends with Gabrielle and uh, Union and Dwayne Wade and seeing how mm-hmm. they have you know, raised, love, supported their daughter Zaya is like so inspirational to me. So with them, you know, having a, a trans child and, and being able to see what they experience and even some of the hatred that they get, it is very, it was disgusting, the hatred, the hatred that they receive for sure. But the way that they love on her is like one of the most beautiful things that I've ever seen. And so if I had a trans kid, if I had a gay kid, um, I know that I would want to do the same thing because the one thing uh, the the queer people I've gotten to know and they talk about how what happened and how their parents didn't support them. And that was such a wedge issue in their relationship that that they never recovered from. I would never want that relationship with my child, because I think a lot of times parents why you hear some of them say that they wouldn't want a trans kid or they wouldn't want a gay kid is because they're in many ways thinking about what the what they will face in the world. And I understand that no parent wants to see their children subjected to hatred, to intolerance, to bigotry, to discrimination, all those things. You know, hello, black people. We go through this all the time. Right. We understand. Right. But I do think there is something um, to be said about wanting to be a part of, you know, raising somebody with the kind of love and support that they deserve and it being you know, a small way that we can begin to break down the transphobia and the homophobia that we see in this world that's still, you know, while it's gotten better, that's still very prevalent. It's like what it boils down is to how you love your child and are you raising somebody who's not going to be a jerk? That's really, to me, that's the only two things. <laughs> you, you, you sound like you're ready for motherhood. <laughs> I mean, you got the basics, you know, love your child, yeah, you know, put some grits in the morning. You know what you I'm know. saying? Exactly, you know. <laughs> Making sure they see all the right cultural movies so the people won't accuse you of being right. a bad parent. Like, are we listening to some Wu-Tang? You ain't going to be out here and not experience Wu-Tang. Girl, can, can I tell you, I just had this conversation with my kid. I was driving him to school one day. True story. We just joked about this. I was driving to school one day, and this little Negro said that Drake was better than Run DMC. I pulled on the side of the highway <laughs> and looked at him and said, let me tell you something. I will leave you right here on the side of this road if you repeat such nonsense ever again. But, LZ, he might have a point, though. 
You know what though? I ain't here for that. I, 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 I mean, you I, know I love me some Reverend Run. I love me some DMC. I ain't here. Listen. Might have a when point. I hear when I'm wearing Adidas, I'm not thinking about Drake. All right, I'm saying my Adidas. That's what I'm thinking about. All right, when I get tricked, when I see a trick playing in the NFL, I go, "Is tricked in rocker, 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 rocker?" Exactly. Yes. I'm not thinking about Drake. Yes. All right. And when okay. listen, I, I I still remember Peter Piper like the back of my head. Come on now. <laughs> so it's like I, I get it. Like when it when you think about. You know, clearly they like the godfathers of, of hip hop. So it's like it's a different relationship. And look, to your point, all jokes aside, if I ever hear a child of mine say Chris Brown better than Michael Jackson, that might be the day <laughs> that they wind up on the, on the street ever. Because these young people out here saying that and it's just reckless behavior. And I'm like, the answer is it's no. Reckless. It's disrespectful. It's disrespectful. It's disrespectful. It is very disrespectful. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. All right. Look, I, I mean, I don't think if I don't have a child that I would feel like my life wasn't somehow incomplete or feel as if the mission wasn't accomplished. But I'm more sort of glad that maybe that frozenness that needed to thaw is sort of you know gone because now I can realize that like oh yeah it was about the fact that I don't think I ever felt safe enough to even really contemplate what my life would life would look like if not I would continue to be rich auntie that's okay <laughs> that's okay too all right? <laughs> I, I am good with you that I, I got god children like it's all right like I, I will still feel very complete and proud of everything I've accomplished and you have accomplished a great deal without your background. But when you actually read the memoir, and again, I encourage people to pick up a copy. It's it's absolutely tremendous. But I mean, we're both from Detroit. I'm from the East Side, Mac and Van Dyke. You know what that is. Ooh, that's first the time real I got robbed, Detroit. <laughs> listen, listen, first time I got robbed at knife point, I was in elementary school. And notice I said the first time. So, so and all they stole, by the way, were the bottles I was taking to the store to ch- exchange for deposits for like 10 cents a, a bottle, but they robbed me at knife point. And it was a full-grown adult. So I'm from Detroit, Detroit. But I was reading your novel, and I was like, I'm not from that Detroit. <laughs> I'm not sure which Detroit she's from. I'm from Detroit, Detroit. She's from Detroit, 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 Detroit. <laughs> uh, listen, I don't know why you, I don't know why you from the LZ. Mac and Van Dyke, dog, I, <laughs> I mean, you from the real hood, not the rap hood. Like that's it. It, it was real. It it was hard. It was difficult. And I look back on those moments. And usually, you know, I'm playing like Marvin Wyans or something like that, looking back and teary eyed and praying and stuff because it never would have made it. Come on now, because we've been through some stuff. But I look at you and I go, you went through all of that. You went through growing up in Detroit. You've accomplished so much. You're at the top of your game. And now they're using the office of the White House to come after you and lobby for your firing for using your First Amendment rights. So, you know, but that is also why I think I was able to have the perspective I had on that and why I was able to for as well as one can take the full you know, thrust of the government being on your head and, you know, suddenly you're being discussed in a White House press briefing where I I never thought I would ever be discussed and, you know, think pieces being written about me and on all the major networks and it becoming an international story. I mean, the, the reason I didn't freak out is because I used to live on Joy Road and Lauder. 
It's because Ooh. I used to live on Curtis and Mendota. It's because I used to live on Seven Mile and Asbury Park. It's because I lived on Pembroke between Monica and Prairie. It's because I went to Bobian. It's because I went to Mumford. Like, that is why. Talked about the president being very clear after Charlottesville and denouncing all hate. I just wanted to read a comment from a influential African-American sportscaster from ESPN yesterday who said, Donald Trump is a white supremacist who has largely surrounded himself with other white supremacists. His rise is a direct result of white supremacy, period. He's unqualified and fit to be president. Why do you think, give a reaction to that, and is the president aware of that comment? And I'm not sure if he's aware, but I think that's one of the more outrageous comments that anyone could make, uh, and certainly something that I think is a fireable offense by ESPN. If the president was so clear, as you said, why do you think influential uh, African-American figures are, are saying things like I'm this. not going to speak for that individual, but I, I know that the president has met again with people like Senator Scott, who are highly respected leaders in the African-American community. He's committed to working with them to bring the country together. I think that's where we need to be focused, not on outrageous statements like well, that one. So because we grew up on you know, some of the rougher parts of the city. And because we both went to Bobie in middle school and because, you know, we both lived to tell it all. Are you trying to tell me that you were prepared to handle the White House because you had just made it out of Detroit? I mean, I, I mean, Detroit, as you know, is a very resilient city. And especially during the time when we grew up in Detroit, I mean, the only time Detroit was ever uh, in the national news was because the murder raid in Devil's Night. That was it. And yep. You you know, you're now uh, privy to my extensive, you know, family history and, and all the things that happened there. So what I would say is what's worse, the president calling for you to be fired or your mother showing you crack before she smokes it. OK, so it wasn't that I knew one day that I would face off against the the president, it was just because of, uh, I think, the early challenges and the early adversity that I faced. It made me that much more prepared and gave me the ability to have amazing perspective about some of the controversies or, you know, minor bumps in the road that I faced along my career. And it gave me that resiliency. I got it from the city. I got it from my mother, my grandmother, my family. That having that resiliency is is a priceless tool to have in the world that, you know, we became a part of. And so when all of that went down, as much as I didn't like being the constant conversation in the nation for a bit of time, I think it's why I stay rooted in who I was, because at the end of the day, there was never a question that I was going to back down because of what he said about me. Last question for you, and I want to go back to sort of where we started, and that's with your stepfather, James. You ever think about him? I do. I do. Um, and especially, you know, you write a memoir, you're going to think about people a lot more than maybe you normally have. You know, the I, the thoughts I had about my grandmother and about him. And while mm-hmm. I do would certainly think about him on occasion, I, it was very obviously dominant during the time I wrote this memoir. Mostly, I you know, I wish he were still here because because of, you know, my own evolution, because of where society is. I would have liked to not only repaired our relationship, but I would have liked to see him experience that same joy of being um, unapologetic, of living um, in their truth and being respected for that, experiencing that level of dignity and humanity. Uh, that eventually came, not perfect, but that eventually came. I wanted to see him see 
to see him experience the joy that I saw some of my other friends experience. Instead, my fear is that, you know, he died feeling tormented or feeling um, unsure, uncertain, unloved. And that is, you know, one of my fears that like he died feeling that way. And I would have loved to him to be able to rewrite his own story and live the life he truly loved, wanted to live and not a life that he felt like he had to live. Amen. Amen. So many of our communities, you know, have had to sacrifice their humanity uh, so that we could have humanity later. And it is so heartbreaking to know that, you know, you had this wonderful human being in your life, whether he was your stepfather, whether he was, you know, your ex-stepfather, whatever mm -hmm. it was, that you didn't have an opportunity to have a full holistic relationship with them as society became more accepting of the queer community and could have fully enjoyed, to your point, all of the the beautiful aspects of life that's that's there for us today. Um, Jamel, thank you so much. I mean, this has been an awesome conversation. When I got to the point in which I saw that you grew up with a, with a gay stepfather, I just said, damn, no wonder we friends. <laughs> 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 you know what you a fool. Um, yeah, you know it. I am a fool. It is. It is. I, I'm, and I'm so glad that you asked that question and got me to kind of think about it a little bit differently in terms of thinking about like, wow, you know, the the impact that that relationship had on how I would later be in relationship and fellowship um, with the community. I think it was really, you know, really important for that. But I never looked at it as a foundational element until you, you asked me that question. So I appreciate you getting me to think about something a little bit differently than I had before, as you often do. I will send you my therapy <laughs> bill. We'll do. Rich auntie. We'll do. <laughs> thank you, Janelle. All right, thank you, Elza. And get her book up Yes, here. available wherever <laughs> books are sold. And guess what? You got to tell people where the books are sold. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, <laughs> all the usual <laughs> suspect. It's up in Target. It's at the airport. It's all these places. So that's where you can get it. <laughs> My gosh, I am so grateful that Jamel spent time with us and talking about a wide ranging conversation between <laughs> like two people from Detroit and all the things that we've been to together, but obviously, of course, as well as separate. And, you know, her story about her stepfather really just resonated with me for obvious reasons. You know, I'm, I was a closeted gay black man myself, married um, to a woman. And, you know, came out and dealt with all the fallout from all of that, including, you know, obviously accusations of living my life on the down low, which, you know, I don't like that necessarily, you know, being characterized that way on the down low, but I understand why people feel that way. And so I wanted to talk about the down low, and I couldn't think of anyone better to have that discussion with than Keith Boykin. For those of you who don't know who Keith is, Keith is a genius for lack of a better word. Um, the very first meeting between a sitting U.S. president and LGBTQ plus leaders was arranged by Keith back in the early 90s when he worked for the Clinton administration. Uh, he has since gone on to do some incredible things, but the main reason why I wanted him on was because of his New York Times bestselling book, Beyond the Down Low, which was released like nearly 20 years ago. And so I decided to reach out to him. So Keith, I, just, I wanted to talk to you because there's this chunk in the conversation I had with Jamel in which she talks about her stepfather, James. Right. And she learns later in life was closeted and later died from complications from AIDS and how that impacted her life, her mother's life, 
um, her view of the queer community going forward, et cetera. When you think about where we were 20 years ago in this conversation in terms of sexual orientation uh. as it pertains to the black community and what prompted you to write this book, you know, how do you view us now? Wow. Are we beyond the down low? Or are we still fascinated by it? Uh, you know, I, I do think we've changed a lot since 2004. I think historically, black people have been very supportive of LGBTQIA people on civil rights issues, but not on morality issues. And that's why black people get this perception of being uh, so much more homophobic than white communities. Because if you ask black people whether gay people should be allowed to serve in the military, be, could be free from discrimination, overwhelmingly, going back into the 80s, and you look at all the polls, black people were as supportive, if not more supportive, than white people. But if you ask them about relationships and marriage, black people were much more conservative about that than white people. And this is a reflective of what Jamel is saying, too, in terms of relationships. This whole fear about homophobia in the black community exists in a different way than it does in the white community. Part of the homophobia in the black community is this, this fear that it will become uh, acceptable and rampant, this whole sort of uh, a respectability politics element of, of homophobia, that this, this might demean the way our community is perceived. But another part of it is that this whole sort of public safety element, because a lot of it started in the 80s. I have this idea, this theory I've been saying for some time, that in black communities, if you look back in the 70s, look at Sylvester, and you look at the village people, you look at all the images, disco, and, mm -hmm. and even going back in time, I look at the Harlem Renaissance, look at the world that Bayard Rustin played, and, and Dr. King's movement, you look at James Ball, and Lorraine Hansberry, and Alice Walker, and Angela Davis, all these people, black queer people, who were just accepted the part of our community. My perception is that AIDS changed everything. In 1981, when the AIDS epidemic hit, the, the, the perception was that, that at first it didn't seem like it affected us because it was just a white gay men's disease in San Francisco and New York. And then within a year or two, we started to see an evolution of that. And there was the four H's that people were told that we should be worried about. There were the homosexuals, hemophiliacs, Haitians, and heroin users. And the black people were like, oh, well, we're not any of those things, black Americans, so we don't really have to be affected still. But by that point, we were already disproportionately over-impacted by the AIDS epidemic, but it just wasn't being talked about in our communities. Right. It would take some time before black communities started to really come to terms with this. But I really believe that the 80s and the epidemic of, of HIV really transformed black communities in the way we deal with homosexuality. It made us much less tolerant. And, and I think before that, we were, and from my perception, we were, not that we were openly embracing and supportive of everybody, but I don't think it was as big of an issue in our communities until the HIV AIDS epidemic hit. Well, let's talk about the epidemic. The question of when did things turn really fascinates me because one, it is something that impacted Jamel's life directly, as you heard in the episode. Yeah. But also two, you know, some numbers that I can just quote really quick from the CDC. In 2019, black people accounted for 13% of the US population, but 40% of people living with HIV. And, yeah. you know, HIV overall, in terms of new infections, declined 8% between 2015 and 2019, except for black people. It stayed the same. Yeah. It didn't decline. Yeah. So I, I guess my question goes back to the beyond the down low thing, right? So if it isn't this fear of queer, if you will, then why are we the community that is still grappling with this epidemic? Well, that is the, the $64,000 question. And I wish I had the answer for you for that definitive answer, but I think there's a lot, there's a lot of factors, you know, that, that go into that. One of them obviously is historical racism and, and medical racism that still exists, disproportionate impact on every, every, every illness and disease pretty much in society, a lot of people are disproportionately affected by it. All right, Keith, last question for you. 
you know, when I think about Jamel and how she grew up having a closeted stepfather, and I think about myself being closeted and having to come out after marriage, you know, do you think we're at a place now where, you know, gay men or gay people, queer people in particular, can can live their authentic selves and not feel the pressure, whether it's from religion or family, whatever, to not be themselves? Yes and no. Yes, I think there's a lot more people who are able to do that than there were maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, for sure. No, because there's still a lot of people who can't. I mean, we still see these stories in the news, these tragic stories of these young kids who are being assaulted and beaten and even killed by their parents because they're not fitting into some sort of gender norm expectations of them. And so those types of incidents tell me that there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, and yet I look at a, look on Instagram at any day and you see like all kinds of images of people who are out and about and living their lives <laughs> with no shame right. and all kinds of pride. You got to love that. So I think, you know, it's just, it's the best of both worlds. And part of it is that because when people become more visible and open and accepting, it also creates a backlash. It creates a, a bunch of people who don't like that and creates some sort of resentment. You know, it's it's, a, it's like this whole desire to, like, make everybody fit into a box and not necessarily the box that you want them to fit into. Let people live the way they want to live. And freedom is an incredibly liberating thing because it, mean, it gives you and me freedom. But it's also important because by letting... Black queer people be free. You're also letting black non-queer people be free. Amen. Well, Keith, I am so glad that you've had the freedom to be yourself, brother. And thank you, LZ. It's a pleasure to be here with you. On the next episode of Life Out Loud, we talk to TV executive and married father of two, Tyel Hayes, about the process of growing his family through adoption. Our adoption story ended very well. <laughs> the journey in it was was not at all storybook. And he gets real about what it's like to have an interracial family in America. Visually, well, like when you see us, there's like, a, oh, hmm, something's different here. Right. We break the norm of what people are used to. That causes some dissonance with people when they interact with my family. And we learned that sometimes laughter really is the best medicine. You can almost see the people looking in the restaurant like, wait, who? Who are they? Really trying to figure us all out. Just eat your pancakes. That's next week on Life Out Loud. Life Out Loud with LZ Granderson is a production of ABC Audio, produced by Trevor Hastings, Lakia Brown, Brenda Salinas Baker, LZ Granderson, Cameron Shatavian, and me. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. And a big shout out to Ariel Chester, Josh Cohan, and Liz Alessi. I'm LZ Granderson. I'm a mom of mine. Just, just eat your pancakes. pancakes. Right. <laughs> <laughs>